Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on. On ABC Radio. Those exactly. lockdowns of communities meant that young people and older people yes. were practising culture and the cultural transmission was yeah. quite extraordinary. Yep. And that the kids weren't being sent off to the boarding school and they were learning from home and created new ways of operating yeah. that meant the old ways and the new ways could kind of come together. And I love this idea that there are positives in all of this stuff, that we shouldn't think that we're going to go back to what we were before, yeah. where in fact this is an opportunity to accelerate the shifts and changes that need to occur. The impacts of isolation, what have we learnt and how have we changed? This is Speaking Out, I'm Larissa Berendt. The coronavirus pandemic has had a profound impact over the past year, with almost 29,000 recorded cases across the country. Of those, more than 900 deaths were recorded in Australia, but globally more than 2.5 million people have died due to COVID-19. Coupled with the crippling economic crisis brought on by community lockdowns, border closures and social isolation, there's little doubt the crisis has taken a massive toll on the mental health and social well-being of many Australians. But as the country looks to expand and refine the national rollout of a COVID-19 vaccination program, we now have an opportunity to reflect on the challenges and lessons the pandemic has thrown us. So how do we measure those mental, social and cultural impacts of isolation on the individual and the wider community from a First Nations perspective? And how have our collective experiences over the past 12 months changed societal behaviours and attitudes? These were just some of the themes explored in the Big Thinking Forum, Impacts of Isolation, hosted by the University of Technology Sydney as part of the Sydney Festival. Joining the conversation were writer, theatre director and artistic director of the Sydney Festival, Wesley Enoch, and journalist and chair of the Bangara Dance Theatre, Philippa McDermott. Let's take a listen now as Wesley Enoch reflects on how the COVID-19 pandemic has transformed the Australian arts industry and in particular the Sydney Festival. In many ways, as you say, Sydney Festival is the first festival in a COVID normal environment, meaning that, okay, how do we actually keep going forward without modifying too much what our core values and beliefs are? And so we've been trying to do that. And even to go back 12 months, we remember the bushfires. There's something about how we were already on an emergency footing in this country that I think helped prepare our way of thinking that the last 12 months for the Sydney Festival has been about shaping our scenario planning, the possibilities and our relationships with artists, but always putting our values forward. And one of the things I found really quite exciting is that we are actually in a period of values, talking about what's important about our community, our country, our, our sense of nationhood. Uh, in, it's also then, I think, highlighted some of the inequities that also exist in our community. And how as Sydney Festival, we're going, okay, how do we make sure that the platform of the Sydney Festival is as relevant to artists and communities as we can make it? So putting forward this idea of uh, commissioning brand new works, especially given that artists have done it really tough in the last 12 months. You know, like uh, we all know so many people, not just companies, but individual artists who suddenly millions and millions of dollars worth of gigs have disappeared from the economy. I'd imagine tens of millions of dollars and how the livelihood of those artists has gone away and how our federal government has in many ways stepped forward and brought in job seeker and job keeper to look after people at an, that's more than just what New Start was and suddenly realising, OK, we can look after our people better. That's been really useful, I think. And, you know, I remember Josh Frydenberg, the treasurer, talking about being in ideology-free zone. And you go, okay, good, good, that's great. But will that be something that we perpetuate going forward? Big question mark. The idea of how do we keep perpetuating our values in the way that we build in a COVID normal environment, vaccine or no vaccine. So for me, the Sydney Festival has really been saying, how do we invite the city to engage in its cultural life, not just think about the health of the body, but also the health of the mind, the health of the spirit, the cultural health 
of our society as well and making sure that we're offering very safe engagements with everyone along the way. So just to draw that out further, in a practical way, how have you navigated? Because it must have been, I mean, we're seeing things change all the time with borders closing. And you know, from that perspective in organising it, what was the strategy you put in place? Well, through putting our values out, we said, OK, what's our scenario? In this scenario, we had in one of our meetings what we call the rabbit hole, where we'd go, OK, here's the hypothetical and let's go down the rabbit hole with that hypothetical and that would create a set of strategies. And so we've spent a good six, eight months strategizing. So weirdly, what we're in at the moment is a strategy that we developed four months ago. We said, okay, well, in this case, we'll do this and this and this and this and this. And in some respects, you can only be responsive. The public health orders, the New South Wales health directives, you just follow those or you ask for exemptions or you show the mechanisms you put in place for safety, like our COVID safe plans. And some things you actually have to go forward and, if you like, question the standing orders and go, actually, imagine this is possible or imagine that's possible. And how do we question those in a very respectful way, but keep everything safe? So in many ways, like one of the big things that we've done is a lot of outdoor performance work. Um, We've built a space called the Headland at Barangaroo Headland, which is a stage, you know, a very large stage that can hold a huge number of people on it. And normally the Barangaroo Reserve can accommodate about 7,000 people in the audience. And with COVID safety, we've got about 1,500 seats there. And so you just keep responding, making sure that you're saying, what's the most valuable thing we're doing? We're making sure artists can get to audiences. How can we make that happen? I mean, there was almost a synergy in a way in part of your response, which was to really focus on Australian performers, which had already been quite a hallmark. And the, the other thing I think you've really brought to the festival as artistic director is partnerships. So they seem to be two things that there was almost a synergy... I remember the day when we kind of went, this is back in April, March, April. Oh, COVID's really going to affect us, you know, and getting different advice from people. And I remember walking into my office and taking off the board all the international work and saying, actually, this is the closest to I want the, what I want the festival to be. <laughs> not so bad, not so bad. You know, never waste a good crisis. Pandemic, yeah. <laughs> so off you go. And as I say about values, that commissioning new Australian work, always really important. And also our First Nations storytelling has really been highlighted during all this process. Now, there's huge disappointments along the way as well, don't get me wrong, but I've tried to shift us away from fixating on disappointment and saying, just keep watching what we can put forward. That's the thing that people see as the festival, not the things they couldn't get to. Now, just finally, before I turn to Philippa, I just wondered if you could reflect, I mean, obviously you did a lot of planning, there's a lot of strategy, there's a lot of lucky synergy, but for you on a personal level, how have you handled, I guess, the demands and the stress of having to almost daily, almost hourly be changing? How have you kept your mental health strong? I was brought up with going, if stress actually helps you solve things, then go ahead, do it, because it can be a useful kind of adrenaline rush. If it can't help you solve it, put stress aside and use that energy to work the problem and just keep focusing on the problem that needs to be solved. And that often if you keep holding on, you know, and saying, I will not let go of this, if you just kind of let it go, suddenly new solutions come your way. And I found myself actually in a constant dialogue between my introvert and my extrovert. In this job, a lot of ideas happen outside. They kind of form through communication and through conversation with others. But during this period of time, my introvert has become a lot more vocal. And I remember the introvert being the one who used to help me write, you know, writing plays, writing papers. And I'm going, oh, actually, that's something I might need to nurture a little bit more going forward as well. So there's constant back and forward about where ideas form and where reflection can occur as well. So I think that's a valuable thing for me. Now, Philippi, you had to really oversee not one but two organisations through this period. Your role at the ABC means that one of your key concerns is the staff and how the staff of that organisation are faring. And then, of course, as chair of Bangara. So you had two very different organisations, but both had to be managed through the pandemic. Can you share with us how you approach both of those organisations through this period? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, the ABC in a lot of senses is such a big beast that there's a lot of people to help, you know. So in terms of 
what I look after, which is Indigenous staff, really, and in both cases, it's about safety first, you know, about our people and their safety, and then, you know, really all the practical kind of work things about employment, you know, working from home, WHS. These are things that people don't normally think about, but they're really important in trying to keep people safe. So because our communities locked down quite early, you know, some even in February, mm-hmm. they were asking before both organisations has actually made a decision to work from home. They were asking to go back. So it was like, well, should we, you know, people were, I think, around in February were a bit, how's it going to kind of play out? So managing that, we tried to let as many people go as we could go back to their communities. But if they didn't have good internet or what have you, how are they going to work from there? So, you know, these are all these kind of really practical things that we had to think about, but also, you know, safety in communities, have they got a proper place to stay, you know, that kind of thing. And same for the dancers and the staff at Bangara. We didn't know if we were going to stop performing, should they stay, should they go back to their communities? And then also communities didn't necessarily want people who'd been in Sydney to go back. So, yeah, navigating that kind of stuff. So really it was people first and safety, then business So the ABC, of course, looked after that side of things. But in terms of Bangara, really, scenario planning, right? We have planned for every possible now, you know, and going through, you know, the months, every possible scenario, cash flows, you know, and it was actually about, I think the thing for us was people first, business, then content. So how are we going to keep the business going? How are we going to keep the company afloat? We weren't sure about JobKeeper then, you know, we lost 90% of our box office from our touring. So it was pretty, you know, it was pretty scary, but we were lucky in the sense that we had an excellent ex-board member come back on in Lynn Ralph and as the head of our audit and risk. And so she had, you know, so much experience. She really helped a fairly new board kind of run through all the paces. So it was, yeah, people, business, then content. And for the dancers, again, the WHS thing, by the time they couldn't go back, we had to get them, some of them shared accommodation. So they are rehearsing and practising in a lounge room. How do you make that safe? We had to buy Tarket for them. We had to, do you know what I mean? Like these are the kind of things that you'd never think about. How are three people who share a three-bedroom apartment and are all dancers going to rehearse, be safe and keep fit? for when they, you know, eventually get back. So they're the kind of things that we've been looking at. And you did just allude to this, that you it was a new board. You've only been on the board for a year, so it was quite a baptism of fire in a way. You got right in the deep end. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And look, I mean, if there's a silver lining, I think it was for our board to be able to get into the weeds. And I've said that before, where you wouldn't normally do that, coming onto a board, we actually had to, through the literally maybe 15, 20 financial scenarios that we had to plan for and performance scenarios, is it going to be two square metres, four square metres, whatever it is, we had to go through literally every line item and adjust it for that, for the different, you know, health challenges and scenarios. So it really helped us understand the business a lot better and also where we could make, you know, savings. I mean, it was dire. If it wasn't for JobKeeper, I mean, and other government support, it would have been dire, I think, for everyone. Of course, you know, we'd like more support, but it has really helped us. So in that sense, I wouldn't call it a silver lining, but it has been a positive that's come out of it for me. Well, let's stick with silver linings in a way and touch on the issue of resilience. Wesley, as somebody who's a creative practitioner and then also festival director, I was wondering from your perspective, what role you see creativity playing in a pandemic? And I guess that's a layered question, both sort of personally as a practitioner and but also, you know, as somebody who is involved in delivering a festival to an audience. Well, even to break that down, the idea that at an organisational level, creative thinking has actually provided hypotheticals and our imagination, what, what we can imagine together collectively has been really powerful. You know, some people would roll their eyes going, oh, that will never happen. And then the, two weeks later, it happens. 
because the creative mind can imagine the things. And sure, you can be willfully optimistic and you know, desperately pessimistic about these things, but all of that helps us along the way. A creative mind is one that can see multiple scenarios simultaneously and see a pathway through them all. And I think that all business needs to learn from creative thinkers. I think that's where we're up to now. On a personal note too, I think that during this pandemic, people have been led to very creative outlets through you know, art making, through music or music listening or making music, reading people who have been engaged in, in screen cultures in a totally different way, that sometimes creative thinking and, and imagination can be a great panacea for whatever your ills are too, can either take you away or help you go into the situation and help unpack it for you even on just an emotional level, to watch, I don't know if we've all just watched Bridgerton, but, you know, just (laughs) down it goes, (laughs) bodice ripping, off it goes, you know. But also this idea of different scenarios for 17th century England. You're looking at it going, oh, what if black people weren't just the slaves to the aristocracy, but were equal members? And so suddenly your mind goes in different directions all of a sudden. And in a world where black lives matter... I can see Bridgerton in a very kind of odd way being a kind of conversation around equality, be it in in a very fictitious kind of environment. So for the audiences, I think creative thinking and imagination can help us explore different social phenomena as well. And on an individual level, I think that it becomes an outlet. It suddenly goes, oh, actually, I can express my dark pessimism or my willful optimism in different ways as well. I can write, I can paint, I can express myself even if I am isolated because I think that ultimately creative thinking creates a collective experience. Even if it's by individual, you are hoping that an audience member somewhere, whoever that audience member is, whether it's your spouse or your your family, are the witness to your cultural expression, that on an individual level, you are also wanting community. And isolation has, I think, highlighted that for me, that community is so much more important and why I think that the digital form, be it Zoom meetings or watching movies together or the whole water cooler experience of talking about Bridgerton or whatever else it is, (laughs) why that's kind of come up too is because we are seeking more and more about community. So for creative artists, it's I think cemented our role in society more and more to bring people together to help express whatever our community is needing to express. And we've gone through some shockers at the moment. Yes, we're going through a pandemic, but also climate change is absolutely at the fore. And the idea of uh, inequalities around Black Lives Matter and things are also at the fore. And we're needing storytellers to help unpack that for us. And I think that we'll see that more and more over the next 12 months. Just picking up on that, Philippa, and as Wesley says, we've sort of focused a bit on the pandemic in what we've discussed, but we're coming off a period where we had a real reminder of the climate crisis with the bushfires. From your perspective, when we have these moments that feel like crisis but are actually ongoing issues, what sorts of wisdom do we get from traditional knowledge? What can our kind of Indigenous heritage bring when we talk about resilience to how we navigate these times? Well, I think in terms of the climate issue, those fires really brought home how Aboriginal people managed land and still do, you know, how our communities do that. And it's kind of a shame that it took something like that for the rest of the country to realise our wisdom and knowledge in management of land and how we have done it for a long time. It's a good thing and sometimes it has to be those overt things that actually bring about that kind of acceptance of things. So I think those kind of things have helped highlight our knowledge and traditional knowledge and bring us together to focus on on that and help support that. And then I think in terms of the pandemic and the community, I think locking down early, that says that we've learnt something, right? We were locked down before the Prime Minister was even thinking about it. So I think we've obviously learnt something about these kind of situations around how we need to protect our communities and how our self-determination needs to be at the forefront of that and we need to lead the way about what's best for us. It was interesting that myself and Leanne Buckskin were chairing these 
First Nations roundtables for Indigenous artists. Up to about 280 of us would be online together. And the conversation was every freezer is full of fish. Yeah. You know, <laughs> right. the idea yeah, that right. those exactly. lockdowns of communities meant that young people and older people yes, were, practicing. were practicing culture and the cultural transmission was yeah. quite extraordinary through hunting and camping and all yep. those kind of things. Yep, being the, on I, country. Yeah. yeah, and that the kids weren't being sent off to the boarding school and they were learning from home and created new ways of operating yeah. that meant the old ways and the new ways could kind of come together. And I love this idea that there are positives in all of this stuff, that we shouldn't think that we're going to go back to normal. Yeah. We'll go back to what we were before, yeah. where in fact this is an opportunity to accelerate the shifts and changes that need to occur. And I love this idea that during the bushfires, we built as a country a moral responsibility to the landscape, going, actually, First Nations people have prototyped that already. Why don't we empower that? Yeah. Like, yeah. Let's empower that also for aged care. Yeah. Let's empower in a First Nations perspective around education, around cultural understanding of identity, that First Nations cultures have prototyped so many things that this country could actually learn from. And maybe the pandemic, you know, this is me being incredibly, <laughs> willfully optimistic again. There's an opportunity here. And I also doubt that I think that the powers that be will take this opportunity to progress that big shift. But when we keep going back to what is the voice to parliament really oh, about? Yes, yes. The voice to parliament is saying yeah. these shifts are possible if you actually identify and value the knowledges that we have in our communities. Yeah, yeah, that the yeah. voice to parliament is actually not just about our empowerment. No. Sure, sure, we'll get something from it. That's great. But in fact, it's trying to make sure that the landscape and the whole country can learn. Yeah. And I think the pandemic has offered that opportunity as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Let me pick up on a couple of things there. And the first is in the vein of the optimism that you have there and the fact that we're all changed by this and it's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm interested to know what you've learnt about yourself during this time. As you ch change the way you work, change the way you engage with family and friends. So for you, Philippa, what did you find out about yourself during this time? Well, I think, look, I'm an extrovert. I think everybody know, who knows me <laughs> knows that. And I have really found working from home very challenging and isolating. I need people. Although that balance, you know, I'd like to do kind of the two days or three days in the office and two days at home. And I need that face-to-face -face contact. And as much as I love my family, I need more than that. So, I mean, I've always known that, known that, but because it was just a natural thing that happened all the time, I think you just take it for granted. But I actually really have realised that kind of stimulation. You know, Zoom is not enough. And as much as I've loved all the content that I've been able to watch and uh, what have you, I went to see Sunshine Supergirl, you know, of course, part of the festival. And just being in a theatre again was like, this is what I need. So for me, I mean, I always knew that, but it kind of reinforced that. And I think also I've learnt we're not going to go back to the way we were. And how many rounds of this are we, you know, waves are we going to go through? I've just missed out on a trip going back to country because I decided things were looking good. I'll go in January. And then, you know, the borders got shut down again. So I haven't seen my family, half of my family, for nearly a year because I was, you know, I thought, oh, we're kind of safe-ish, so I'll book my trip. So do things as soon as you can. That's my new kind of thing. You know, absolutely. If you want to see your family, do it before Christmas. Don't do it after, you know, like while you can, because you never know what's going to change, right? That's right. We had a similar exact, similar issue in our household with yeah. exactly that phenomenon. What about you, Wesley? What have you learned about yourself during this time? Often I would be jumping on a plane at least once a week to fly somewhere and seeing that also as an active ego the idea of importance that you place upon the trappings of flying somewhere, having a meeting, doing things like that, where in fact, trying to kind of work out what's actually valuable and how you can do things. So new technologies have meant that in this period, I've kind of upgraded the way I engage with hardware, software to go, okay, this is actually a telephone conversation. This is a video conversation that needs to happen. This is actually an email. This is something that absolutely is about relationships. So Christmas dinner, I literally just got to Brisbane, had a Christmas dinner with my family about a week before Christmas, 
and got out before the borders closed. Like I just in and out and I go, that quick trip, which I'd normally just do because I thought I was so important, was one of the things I really valued and go, oh, that's really important. Giorgio Agamben talks about this idea. He's an Italian philosopher and talks about the physical health of body. But in fact, there's also the cultural health and all the other issues that we've talked about. This idea of how society is operating and that often we highlight the physical health over our cultural health. And that idea that actually your work life, your earning money, all of those kind of things, your cultural life is just as important. And how, whether that goes to the theatre or in fact going, this is my window to visit country. Everything else needs to step back for a second and move forward. And I've spent a lot of my working life valuing work, valuing earning money, valuing the perception of me from my colleagues, rather than perhaps the cultural life that we're leading, but we're kind of, it's atrophying through this period and how we need to invest in that. So the active ego, which says, do you like me? Do you like me? Has really taken a back seat to the idea, this is the obligation I need to fulfill more and more. When you were talking about all the different scenarios you tested, was there a scenario where the artistic director was caught outside of Sydney during the period because <laughs> of the border closing? <laughs> no, but it's, it's interesting that in our analysis, I am a major transmission risk because of the mm. way I engage and I talk to audience members, yeah. I talk to artists, I talk to staff. So I'm not allowed to go backstage and talk to artists after a show yeah. because I could potentially take something from an audience member to them. Yes. So it's, it's interesting yeah. that that's the bigger kind of yeah. scenario. We playing. don't need you to become a super spreader event. Right. No, no, now, we were elbow bumping when we yes. saw each other just before. So, yeah. you know, absolutely, you're, still, you're practising very right. good. I want to take us back to the big picture again. And, Philippa, I know one of the issues that's very close to your heart is the deaths in custody. You've been a long advocate around social justice with your work. And I think one of the phenomenons we saw last year in 2020 was the momentum around the Black Lives Matter movement, which, again, I know you were involved in the Australian response to that. This happened in the midst of a pandemic and sparked by something in the United States. Was there a connection to the fact that this issue that you've advocated around for decades suddenly had a moment where there was greater attention on it? Was that a coincidence that this happened during a pandemic or do you see that there was some correlation? And what do you think the longer legacy of that might be? Will it lead to some change? Well, I think it had two things impacted it because Black Lives Matter had been around for, you know, five or so years before that. Two things, Trump and then COVID. So I think Trump's overt racism really spelled out and showed out to white people what racism looks like. So when people complained about racism, it actually kind of had a face and was more credible to people because they could see what Trump was doing in that this is how it manifests. So I think, you know, his kind of undertone had kind of made things more overt. So therefore it shone a brighter light on that kind of thing because those kind of things have happened and still are happening in America and happening here. But, you know, the George Floyd incident, sometimes it takes, you know, that one spark to ignite something. So the Trump mantra about division, or not his mantra, but, you know, the division that was being caused because of that kind of language that he used and what have you, made things so overt that I think that really had a big spark, you know, that they could actually see what racism looked like. And that translated to us because we've had so many of those scenarios or so many of those instances where, you know, with deaths in custody, with one in particular when the young lad was in custody saying, I can't breathe, the same thing happens here. So people can relate to it, you know, and so it starts to manifest in people's minds that, oh, okay, this is what it looks like because racism is so nebulous, right? Unless it's a hugely overt act of racism, you know, like the Klan or what, you know, or that kind of thing, not even the Klan, but, you know, some hugely overt thing. People think, oh, well, microaggressions or casual racism isn't really racism or it's not as impactful, so it doesn't really matter. And I think now things have been able to kind of unpack a bit and people can see it a bit deeper. I I wouldn't say I'd thank Trump, 
but it's like those polar opposites. You have to have the yin to have the yang. But I also think there was an era that having a black president in America, everybody thought racism was over. All right, wait, we're done now, like we've appointed, you know, and that does have impacts over here too and around the rest of the world. Oh, we've got a black man as the most powerful man in the world. What are you complaining about now? You know, we're not racist anymore. So I think there was a bit of that and then then you get, you know, Trump and what have you. And then I think COVID on top of that, you know, people were prepared to come out in the street, you know, about Floyd and then about all of that. I think that had another impact and layer. Well, I think too that people were prepared to get on the street because our political leadership in this country... Also, let's put Duke and Gorge in there yeah. and oh, that yeah. young fella up in Surrey Hills who, who got smashed yeah. into his face. Yeah. All around Reconciliation Week and, yes. and you know, yes. there was this weird time and our political leadership weren't actually voicing those concerns. And yeah. In many ways, we're trying to suppress the story. And I think that COVID has been this magnifying glass on everything that the busyness of our lives has gone to the side and we've been able to focus on some very important issues mm. and that when it came up, everyone went, this is something we really have to deal with. Yeah. So let's actually spend some time yeah. on it. But how do you sustain the momentum, right? That's always the thing. And I think through this pandemic, because it has been going for a while, when you were talking previously about will we go back to normal, well, I think because it's gone for a year, that idea has gone. I think you're right. What is the new normal? And then how do we sustain this momentum, right? How do we... It's hard. It's hard work. You can't be out in the street all the time. So for me, then, how does the voice to parliament work with Black Lives Matter? You know, like, will it become irrelevant because of Black Lives Matter? Or will it help the voice to parliament? Will it shine a light on the things that the voice needs to lobby on our behalf or what have you. So, I mean, that's the, that's the thing, right, about all of this is about how is it sustainable. We can't have these incidents happening again, you know, every time it happens. I mean, how do we sustain it? So that's the trick, and I'd like either of you to answer that. <laughs> well. well, before we do that, I'm just going to jump in with another follow-up question for you. Do you think that through the pandemic, our understanding of what community is has changed? And there's been some observations that it's heightened divisions, but there's other ways in which it's brought people closer together. I mean, it can be both things, but what's your reflection on how it might have challenged or changed what we think community is? Well, I don't think it's changed community as such. I think you know, going back to our conversation just before about locking down early and knowing how to manage those kind of things, I think it has actually given us some great insight about what we can do as communities for each other and how we can protect each other. So it's kind of given us a greater understanding of our strengths. So I think for me, that's how that looks. I don't know about divisions. I haven't really heard, you know, or seen or felt, you know, much of of that kind of energy around. Um, I think it's really been more positive. And I think that the idea of going back to country is not impossible for kids to be able to be there, even if they are locked down, because, you know, now that you have got the NBN or whatever, you know, (laughs) believe it or not, if that works in that community, we can actually be on country more. And then people get the value and understand, you know, the sustained value, I think, of being on country. But that's one of the issues, I think. The digital divide has become more uh, noticeable. It was interesting to see the federal government go, actually, we have to fast-track some of this digital upgrade of the NBN because, in fact, we know it's not fit for purpose. And so this kind of policy thing, which was latent in the background, has been pushed forward and going, actually, what we've done for the last, let's call it seven years, has not been enough Mm. and we need to do more. But I think also the gap between those who are earning a wage full-time and those who are part-time, you see that divide Mm. kind of forming in ways that is very class-structured. So those who have access to capital to build businesses or build structures, they found ways of being protected and looked after. And I think that the part-time labour force has found it more and more difficult to access. And so those who are serving in cafes and restaurants, which are a lot of arts community, find that part-time work very useful to help subsidise arts careers or supplement arts careers. So there's a kind of sense of those things have become a lot trickier. And it's interesting in... In hotel quarantine, I've been gobsmacked. It's been security and cleaners that are most exposed, so low in terms of pay and so low in terms of training to look after them. And they're the ones being exposed. And through them, 
exposing the rest of the community? How do we look after the whole of society in that as well? And I think the biggest issue in this country is that we're moving from rewarding labour to more and more rewarding capital, and we have to watch out and get that balance right. Mm. Actually, the, the other thing around community, I think, you know, what's changed, we've always known that a lot of our communities have less access to technology, and yes. that became very stark, even in the city. Kids, you know, learning from home and not having access to computers and not even Indigenous community, yeah, yeah. you know, like... Just generally, you might have a family of three kids and you've only got two computers. Well, how's that going to work? Or one computer or none. So I think that if we are going to change in that way, then we have to do more, you know, a lot more in that space. That will just give people access to go back to country as well. Agreed. And actually, it's complete follow-up to that question because you've made a couple of observations about the responsiveness of community. And I wonder if you could maybe reflect on how important our community-controlled organisations have been, the role they've played. I know you've been a strong advocate about them through this period. So what have you seen their role during this time and what can they teach us about the importance of governance? Yeah, well, I just could not be more impressed, quite frankly, with our, you know, with Nacho and our community-controlled health for a start, that group, those peak bodies, have just been phenomenal. As we talked about before, they locked down communities in February. They have been there, done that through disease, you know, various viruses or, you know, we have had this ongoing kind of challenge for 250-something years. So I think we've learnt from smallpox onwards about how we have been isolated in that regard and what the way that governments and, you know, or whoever may be, organisations that were looking after that, how they isolated Aboriginal people while those things were going on and how detrimental we've learnt how detrimental that was to us, whether it was, you know, in a leprosorium or, you know, and these things were still going in the 80s. So I think we've had this incredible melding together of all of that learning and that has just risen above this pandemic and, and the leadership shown, I think, and, you know, the governance of those organisations to make those decisions and be in control and be self-determining about how they're going to manage it, how they're going to manage their communities and this crisis in the best way that suits us has been an outstanding success. And, you know, I just hope that that has been obvious to the powers that be and also to other organisations so that they can see how one particular group, a peak body, has managed it. I think we've had like less than 200 cases in remote communities of COVID, if that, or in any communities like urban and remote and regional and rural. And I'm not even sure about deaths. Like I can't answer those questions, but it's been managed so well that I just think it's a shining example for all of our organisations to see that. Especially when you think about what the projections were about how bad it could have been and what happened with the Navajo. The AFR, the Australian Financial Review, did the 10 most culturally powerful people in the country. The two Indigenous representatives there were Pat Turner and they're just acknowledging what her role was, not just in the response to the pandemic, but also the rewriting of the whole closing the gap, her and a lot of other people, but that that leadership, leadership, which is community-controlled leadership. We used to call it self-determination, didn't we? But it's it's actually... That's what they called it in Redfern when we were growing up. (laughs) That's right. right. And the other person who the AFI uh, said was very powerful was um, Rachel Perkins. The idea of a storyteller and someone part of the community-controlled health organisations. They were seen as one of the top ten most culturally powerful people in the country. And you go, yep, that's because of that. They were two good choices. (laughs) They're getting a ringing endorsement from the three of us. Leslie, I just want to bring us back to the festival a little bit more. And you talk about we're in COVID normal now. And I think that's a really smart way to think about it. And from that perspective, how has life forever changed for performers and for audiences? One of the downsides of this is that the arts have become more elite because there are fewer tickets on sale. And that's been really heartbreaking for me at the Sydney Festival, where those who are used to buying tickets and getting in there and picking up the tickets, you know, and doing all that kind of stuff, they've got in early and they've got all the, the seats and you go, oh, that's great. But there are people who would normally take a risk and come along that may not be able to do. So what I want to make sure that we view the future is not to be as elitist as both sport and art has been in the last little while, making sure that things stay very broad 
uh, and that we become stay culturally relevant to a much broader community. I think also this idea of I've seen a compassion and empathy build for the arts industry in the last, let's say, six to eight months that I don't think was necessarily there before. We've taken it for granted a little bit. I would say that the outcry forced the federal government to deliver that $250 million package, of which, you know, to be honest, was not even a third of what was expected. And it took so long to kind of roll it out. But that notion of the outcry and saying, we've got to support our artists was a very interesting momentum that I think the arts need to step up and harness as well and keep that connection to people because people were saying this was important that we don't lose these companies like Bangara, that we don't see a generational slide back in terms of employment, in terms of the more progressive agendas around gender equity, around representation of other marginalised voices or diverse voices in organisations, that we don't see a slide back to well, this is what's sold in the past and we have to keep going back to that. So I think that the future is one where we have to be vigilant that the audiences who have really, really been saying this is important to us, to value the arts, to be progressive, that they are listened to and that the powers that be aren't just thinking about the economic returns. Yes, that's one of the things that we need to take into consideration, but that it's not the dominant discussion around the future of the arts because I think that the demands have shifted and changed and that the public discussion, there's an opportunity for more arts advocacy and for us to step out of, as artists, step out of this sense of, well, we're naturally pessimistic, we're naturally protective of the creative instinct and we also sit in our ivory towers sometimes, but that we need to open up and make sure that we are strong advocates to our community because they really do believe in us. Yeah. Do you have any observations about that, especially with your role as Bangara, about how performance and audience might have changed forever? Well, I think people probably are a bit over digital. <laughs> but we can't think we can ignore it, though. No, but no, no. Yeah. But, I mean, people are desperate to get back Agreed. out. You know, and they will, of course, and they will go back to digital. If they have to, they have to, you know. But, of course, I think they would much prefer in a safe way to do that. And I think, well, with Bangara, we're doing a regional tour which is something that perhaps we would maybe only go to three places. But now because, you know, of scheduling and what have you, we're able to go to a lot more places. So I think that is really going to be probably a lot more on the agenda, Mm -hmm. actually trying to do a lot more regional stuff. So, you know, not just the big city. Obviously, you need the big city stuff. But, you know, giving back to community, which we do in many ways. But, you know, I think regional touring is something that we want to do. But it's how do you maintain this artistic vibrancy of a nation, you know, when all of these little organisations might be closing down or not surviving. I mean, and that's the thing. You've got your, your big productions and what have you, but it's actually about the vibrancy of the industry itself. And, you know, how do we keep that going, I think, is something that we all have to consider and support. Well, maybe this idea to add into the idea of festivals have had an addiction to exclusives and premieres when in fact collaboration is the buzzword. Well, it always has been, but... but, It has been for you. It has been for me, but I think more and more people are doing it too. More and more people say, if we are going to bring an international group over, the idea of bringing them to one festival only and then returning them, both environmentally but also in terms of the health impacts... If they're going to come over and you have to quarantine them for two weeks, best to keep them in the country for a bit longer. Or the idea of going, okay, well, touring in regional New South Wales, let's go to 12 places rather than three because we'll need to do that. We have to organise ourselves around the makers of work rather than just the presenters. And often we've had this presenter-driven model, which has been about demand, when in fact I think we have to also look at the supply that that we can create more efficient touring if we think about collaborating Mm. in a better way and and putting the artist in the centre of that I think is an important thing. Now before I ask the final question, I do feel like I need to check in with you, Wesley, because five years you've been the Artistic Director of Sydney Festival and not only have you transformed the festival in your own way as most artistic directors have done... I think you've also brought things to the city that have been uniquely your imprint and and will be a lasting legacy. But I just wanted you to share with us what you hope your legacy will be from the festival and what you're planning to do next. Well, legacy is one of those wonderful things. Well, but I think it's for others to value or not. You know, like it's that classic thing when you leave, 
it's what stays behind. And it was actually quite disappointing, just a little backstory. Having left the Queensland Theatre Company five years ago, to then realise in 2021 that they had no Indigenous programming for the first time in over a decade. And kind of going, you can't know, and being, you know, needing to be vigilant about those things is very important. But I hope that what I've done at Sydney Festival is number one, so independent artists, small companies, large companies, that they feel that the festival can be a home for their cultural ambitions, things that are out of the ordinary and things that they can challenge themselves to do something slightly different. I also hope that communities, audiences, are saying, actually, the arts are a place where we can prototype new creative thinking, that we can explore our city, at least the cultural profile of our city, and see different voices to the ones that are just around the corner from me. But in fact, across the city, there are different voices. And that Sydney is... For all that we poo-poo it, it is in fact one of those kind of cultural leaders' spaces in the nation. So how do we shift and therefore others can look at it and learn the lessons and do it better or something as well? So those ideas of collaboration, the ideas too of First Nations storytelling, I think in my time, even the last five years, I've seen festivals go from just having one or two Indigenous works to going, actually, it's not proper unless you have about a dozen And suddenly the people lifting out of not just a big opening event, but you need to have a body of work to see the diversity of storytelling from a First Nations perspective, not just the one ticker box kind of idea. And that's been a shift I hope doesn't slide back. And the idea of diverse voices, not just from a First Nations perspective, but saying that there are amazing voices out there, that the arts are maybe not their priority in a first-generation kind of wave of migration that might come through in the second or third, that when they are there, it actually normalises their position in society for a festival to give them a platform. So what am I doing next? I'm going to split my time. My partner lives in Melbourne, so split my time six months in Queensland, in Brisbane, and six months in, in Melbourne, and going back to live on Stradbroke Island. Oh, so, back to country. Uh, yeah, back to country where I come from, Minjitaba. And the families we've got together and we're building an art centre. So helping doing that together would be really great. And also then working with QUT, they've made me the Indigenous Chair of Creative Studies, uh, Creative Industries, sorry, Creative Industries, and looking at role modelling and developing young people through to have careers in creative industries. To be honest, I don't want a full-time job at the moment, I think. But I do think that my future is not about being the only black fella in a white organisation. It's making sure that there's a cohort of us or actually going, well, after 11 years running large white organisations, what's it like to take those networks and skills and put them in an Indigenous environment? What can we do differently? And what lessons do we have to teach the rest of society? Well, I'm already excited about your next big adventure. You haven't <laughs> even started it yet. But yeah. we'll all be keeping a close eye on you, Wesley Enoch. I thought finally, now, I think it's come through in your observations, even though you're, you're both very good at critiquing, that you are actually in your hearts, optimists. And I was just wondering, maybe as a final question, there's no doubt that however much positive spin and however much you see as a benefit flowing from the time we've been through, it's changed things and we've all been disconnected from things that we feel very close to. And I was just wondering from each of you, is there something that you haven't been able to do during the pandemic that you are needing to do or can't wait to do again? For me, I can't wait to hug people again. Mm. I'm a real hugger. That I have really missed, but I was just wondering from your perspective, what about you, Philippa? Well, yes, hugging is a good thing, absolutely. I think travelling, especially going to see family, you know, my family are in Queensland as well, and, you know, or Tweed and back into Bow Desert. So, yes, travelling and actually working in an office. I know that sounds (laughs) weird, right? But I miss that interaction. So not every day. I think, you know, as I said before, I think two or three days is, is enough, but I actually do miss that and I wouldn't mind getting back. But it's about the collaboration, really. That's what it's about. When you're with your team or when you, you're in a meeting or what have you, it's about the collaboration. And so you can do that over Zoom, but it's much better face-to-face and seeing people's expressions and how they're reacting to your crazy ideas and, and what have you. So, yeah, there's two things that I... What about you, Wesley? Look, I think all forms of intimacy is the thing I miss. My partner lives in Melbourne, so, and there's been, let's say, almost seven months of no physical contact with them. So there's, you know, there's things that you miss there in your body. 
but also this idea of hugs, of kissing family, of the way you create bonds have been kind of just sitting by the side, waiting to be reanimated. I think the biggest thing outside of those intimacies that I'm, I'm missing is huge gatherings where we eat together, big kind of family things of big food and big pots and all sharing the same spoon to serve yeah. and, you know, things like that. that <laughs> there's a kind of rambunctiousness yeah. about it that there's at the moment a timidity about engagement and you want there to be a kind of like, what's it really the visceral sense of all coming together and sharing. You've just heard writer, theatre director and artistic director of the Sydney Festival, Wesley Enoch. You've also been listening to journalist and chair of the Bangara Dance Theatre, Philippa McDermott. They were speaking at the Big Thinking Forum, Impacts of Isolation, hosted by the University of Technology Sydney as part of the Sydney Festival. To take us out tonight, we've got a track for you from Dan Sultan. Here he is with Brand New Day. Oh, now we'll run away! Dan Sultan with the track Brand New Day. And that's the show for this week. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out. Speaking Out.